Genesis. This is our third, uh, third class on the creation. And so this one I begin put into three different steps. First, I want to talk about the bizarre story. Say bizarre? Genesis 1 isn't bizarre. Oh, yes. To Moses, it was incredibly bizarre. It was massively different and hugely revealing. And we just grew up with it. Even if we didn't grow up in church, we grew up with the understanding or idea that the Bible teaches this. And so to us, it doesn't seem bizarre. But to Moses and the Israelites, it would have. So I want to talk about that in some more detail. Second, I want to look at the text in context. We're going to look again at the text, see what does it say, and today, what are the options? So we'll be looking at it with an eye towards evolution. We'll be looking at it with an eye towards poetry. We'll be looking at it with an eye towards fill in the blank. And then the third thing we'll do, as usual, we'll have our points for home, and uh, I look forward to sharing those with you as well. What are the take-homes of Genesis creation to Israel? in the ancient days, and what are the take-homes to us today? And so that's what we're going to do. Now let's start with the bizarre story. I was talking to my sister Catherine uh, over, I don't remember when it was, it may have been last night over dinner, Um, um, but we were talking about this and she said, you know, you really need to take your time and explain some of this because this isn't what we typically get. In, in life group when we're studying these things. So let's do it. We did Egypt's look at things last week. This week we're going to do some other surrounding neighbors of Moses and Israel and look at their view of the world. And so here's the setting. I want you to imagine you're on Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to the mountain. And as Moses goes up, God gives revelation to Moses. We don't know that he gave all of it in one fell swoop. We don't know if it came prophetically. It doesn't detail how God dictated beyond the fact that God etched out the Ten Commandments with his finger on a stone. But God's revealing information to Israel through Moses. And so we've got these five books of Moses, which principally carry that information. And within those five books, the first one is called Genesis. Now, I've shown you this slide. I want to keep showing it to you. I want you to memorize this slide. Genesis was written for us and all of humanity, but it was written to ancient Israel. So when we read Genesis, we must read it It's written originally in ancient Hebrew. Got a couple of Aramaic words, but originally in ancient Hebrew. It uses ancient vocabulary. And it uses ancient understandings. What we would call science. There wasn't a word for science at the time. Science is a relatively new word. But... It used their understanding of of what we would call in some ways science. Now, because that's the context, we will treasure God's word most when we read it in context. And so we're trying to hear the ancient world despite the fact we're wearing glasses made today. We're trying to figure out how to understand the ancient world despite living and our tendency to interpret it by what we understand today. So if we're on Mount Sinai and we've got Moses up there, we know from Scripture that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. We know he's raised in Seti the first household. So we've got good understanding. We talked about those things last week. But he's left after living his lifetime there. He's spent time out in the mountains after he ran from uh, uh, the next Pharaoh. 
yeah, uh, four decades or so he spends out there. So he's then getting permeated by the other surrounding cultures as well. But you've got him and he's approached by what we would call cultures of the Levant or Levantine cultures. Now, Levant may not be a term you're familiar with. It's kind of a geographical term. Levant, if we throw up a map, this is a modern map. The Levant is roughly this area here. Different scholars will include different things in the Levant. But it's kind of uh, uh, a number of, of, of uh, if you're talking about historically, it's a number of historical kingdoms and tribes and peoples in that rough geographic area. So that's the Levant. Let's change to a satellite map to get rid of all of the extras. And here's what we've got that are going to be relevant to us as we talk today. We've got Egypt down here. This is a satellite photo, so you can see the green associated with the Nile, where it's fertile and they're able to grow. Uh, this is Sinai. Somewhere on here, people debate about which mountain is Mount Sinai, uh, but this is even today geographically called the Sinai Peninsula, and Mount Sinai most likely is somewhere and for the last 2,000 years, people have identified it with one particular mountain. Up here, you've got these two rivers, the Tigris River. How do you say river in Greek? Potamos. Potamos. How do you say in the midst of? Mezzo. So these, this is part of the Mesopotamos in between the rivers, or as you would say it, Mesopotamia. That's where it comes from. It's the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And those rivers are major watercourses in that area. Now, if you go up here into Turkey and coming down into modern Syria, you have the ancient Hittite kingdoms. The Hittites were a, a, a group of people. There are a lot of excavations that are done from the Hittite culture. And the Hittite culture doesn't go away until roughly the time the Israelites are settling the promised land. Around 1200 to 1150, is, there's a huge cataclysmic change in the world. And uh, the Hittites' uh, kingdom falls apart. But it's an early kingdom. It was a strong kingdom. And we've got a lot of their material and it will be relevant to you today. Just south of that is an ancient city... Ugarit. And Ugarit has been excavated and they found a boatload of tablets there. They're written in Ugaritic. It took its name from Ugarit. But we've got a boatload of information from Ugarit that's contemporary to Moses as well. And then, of course, in this area surrounding the rivers, you've got a number of different kingdoms that have written or spoken in Akkadian. You've also got one significant kingdom, uh, the Kassites, who didn't really speak in Akkadian, but they took over the Babylon area for a while. So you've got those cultures in those areas, and then you've got Israel that I'll put here in the green. So my question to you is, when we talk about Genesis 1 and 2, we can look at it in, in, in essence asking this question, well, what did Israel's neighbors think? What did the neighbors of Moses think about the creation of the world? About God and the relationship between gods and humanity. We've got real good information on this. So we can look at the Hittites, for example, upcoming down into Syria and mostly dispersed through Turkey. And the Hittites have these stories about um, El-Kunir Shah. El-Kunir Shah is the Hittite taking on a Canaanite, which is the area of Israel that Israel will take over. They took over the story of the Canaanite god El. 
plural form Elohim, which is used in the Bible for God. But they took over, that's just the generic word for God, but there was a specific God, El, who was the creator of the earth, Kunirshah. They didn't understand that that was God, the creator of the earth. They just blended it together into one whole name. But we can read about El Kunirshah and we can understand what they thought that this God did as the creator of the world. And it's interesting when you read those stories. Is Larry Burgess here today? Where is he? He's not here. Well, I'm not going to give him a shout out then. Larry reads a guy named John Walton, and, and John's been to the library, and John's a great guy, and he's smarter than I am on all this stuff. But one of the areas where I think he, he um, gets a little too tunnel vision is by using, for example, in the Hittite stories, the serpent in the stories, the ancient serpent, represents chaos. And so he interprets a lot of Genesis 1 with the idea of the serpent being chaos. He doesn't really focus as much on the Egyptian view of the serpent. And in Egypt, the serpent is more often identified as a god. And Pharaoh will wear a serpent hat with the asp. But all of these creatures have roles in all of these stories. And you have to figure out, what are they? And, and as you read through these stories, one thing becomes apparent. The ancients believed... That the operation of the universe, I mean everything, requires every god to properly perform her or his function. So if you want the weather to be good, the god in charge of the weather needs to be tending to their business. If you want your livestock to be fertile, the goddess, usually, not always, but the goddess of fertility needs to be paying attention. And if calamity happens, it's probably because some god abandoned their post. This is their thinking. There's a Hittite story, the wrath of Talipinu. The wrath of Telepinu is a fascinating story. In the wrath of Telepinu, where did I put? Hold on. I could read you a bunch of it, but instead, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. You've got this god named Telepinu. And he's been sleeping. And he wakes up. And when he wakes up, he's really grumpy. He wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, we might say. And it's evidenced by him swinging his feet off the bed and putting his shoes on the wrong feet. This is a God, okay? He's got his shoes on the wrong feet. And he's so ticked off. Now, he's the god of fertility. He's the god of produce. He's the god of livestock. He's the god of farming. And he's really mad. So he just leaves. Says, I'm out of here. I'm fed up. I got burnout. I can't get a good night's sleep. I'm gone. And famine hits. And the livestock aren't producing. And the world's falling apart. And people are starving to death. Not only that, some of the gods are starving to death too. Because they got to be fed. So the gods decide to, to do a search party. They're going to hire Tim to go find this person, this God. They're going to go out there and find him. Well, the gods can't find him. The sun god sends an eagle flying around to look for him. Eagle can't find him. So finally, one of the gods says, the mother goddess actually says, I'm going to send a bumblebee 
And the sun gods, or one of the other lesser gods says, wait a minute, I couldn't find them. You think a bumblebee can do what an eagle couldn't do? And uh, Mother Goddess says, well, I don't know, but I'm sending. Well, the bee starts going out, finds Telepinu asleep in a meadow. Starts stinging him. Stings him on his hand, stings him on his feet. You think he woke up the first time angry. He wakes up this time and he's livid. But he comes back to address it with the gods and they have a big knockdown drag out. Those are the types of stories that these people believed in. You know, if you're looking and you see Egypt and you see these rivers and you see all of this, you see the Hittite kingdom and you start trying to put all of this stuff together. Um, Here, let me get rid of that. Yes. Let's go to Ugarit, south of the Hittite kingdom, very close to Israel. Now, we've got the ruins of Ugarit and they've been archaeologically dug and we've got a boatload of Ugaritic tablets And what they show are that the gods are basically just supersized human beings. It's like they went through McDonald's and said, I'll have the Happy Meal or the number one, supersize it. And that's what they did. They just supersized the gods. They're like us, they're just bigger. And so you've got these incredible stories about them. You've got the story of the Ba'alu myth. Now, Ba'alu you've heard of. You've just heard of him from his Hebrew name, Baal. But in the Ugaritic tablets, they call him Ba'alu. The Hebrew, if you're reading it, would actually say Ba'al. They just add the U at the end. But that's Baal. All right? So you've got the god Baal, and you've got another god named Yamu. And Yamu is the god of the waters. Baal, Baal, Baalu, is the storm god. Don't, I mean, the Hebrews know this. They, they're influenced by this stuff. They've got people who are falsely following Baal. So here's what happens in the, the Baalu myth. And there are lots of tablets that reflect this. This is just a consensus of them. But, and, and we don't know exactly which tablets go in which order, and so that, all of that gets lost. But Yamu is the god of bodies of water, okay? And he decides he wants all the other gods to bow to him. So he sends a messenger to the big party that the gods are having. They're supersized humans. The word gets out. The messengers are coming. Oh, and when Yamu sends the messengers, he says, no bowing. You don't bow to those other gods. You go to those gods and you stand up tall and you tell those gods, hey, 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 bow to Yamu. Yamu is the boss. So the messengers come. The gods realize the messengers are coming and the gods go into depression. The text says they, they take their head and they put it on their knees and they can't even look up. Why does everything happen to them? And the messengers arrive. The messengers of Yamu arrive. The embassy of the ruler, Naharu, it's another name. At the feet of Ilu, um, Ilu is El, the, the, the chief creator god. They just add U at the end, but that's Elu. Um, at the feet of Ilu, the big god, the head of the pantheon, they don't fall. They don't bow down to the great assembly of the gods. They just stand there and say their speech. They look like a fire, two fires. Their tongues are like a sharpened sword. They say to the bull, his father Elu, the bull is a title of the leader of the gods, message of Yamu, your master of your Lord, ruler Naharu, give up 
O gods, the one whom you obey, the one whom the hordes of the earth fear. Give up Baal and his attendants, the son of Dagon, that I might take possession of his gold. Well, the gods are terrified. They say, okay, you can have him. Baal's like, what are you doing giving me up like that? That bull, his father Elu, replies, hey, Baal's your servant. You want him, you got him, take him. He can be your prisoner. He can give you everything he's got. Just leave us alone. And Baal goes ballistic. And so this story continues for tablet and tablet as Baal ultimately gets a bunch of weapons put together and built and goes and kills Yamu. This is the stuff that's happening in their stories. This is the way their gods behave. And of course, nature is suffering the consequences of all of this because nature is ruled over by these gods like this. I mean, they've got stories of dawn and dusk. Dawn and dusk are two different lesser gods. They're not a big deal. These are Hittite, or no, those are stories. Oh, mercy, I did that again on this slide, sorry. Let's go to Acadia. The Akkadians have this incredible story that's passed down for a long time. It's called the Enuma Elish. Now, to understand the Akkadian story, we, we need to do a little bit of a... Hold on, I need a better writing pen. We need to do a little bit of... You, you need like a scorecard. If you're watching the Strohs, this is your lineup, okay? So you got this initial god. Initial god's name is Apsu, okay? And Apsu is actually the god of fresh water. So be thinking, when you think Apsu, think fresh water, okay? So you got a god, Apsu, who's the god of fresh water. And he's a, he's a guy. Then you got a girl. Her name's Tiamat. Whoops. Left out her eye. Tiamat. Tiamat is salt water. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there the two should mingle. Yet mingle they did. And the result of their intermingling is chaos. Oops. Chaos. And part of chaos is Children. Some might say children is chaos. They have Lamu and they have Lahama. Now, some people think that that's silt and uh, Lahama they think is a snake. You can't really tell from the documents we've got, but Lamu and Lahama incestuously mingle and they produce some more gods. They produce the god Anshar. And Anshar is the sky. They produce the god Kishar. And Kishar is the earth. Now, not wanting to leave the family there, we get some more offspring. Ansar and Kishar interbreed. And they produce Anu, who becomes the supreme heaven god. All right? Now, Anu produces a god named Ea, or also called Nudimud. Nudimud, in case you're looking for a name for a child. Nudamud is strong and wise. And he produces an offspring, Marduk. And at this point, you've got your playing card for the game that's ensuing. Because here's the story. Within the framework of this, here I've pulled this story up here. This is um, pretty crazy. So... After walking through how these people are born and who's born and what's born and all the rest, we've gotten to the point where Anu begot his own image. And again, this word image permeates this stuff. Nedimud. 
And Nadimu dominated his forebearers. He was profound in wisdom, acute of sense, massively strong, much mightier than his grandfather Anshar. He didn't have any rivals. But here's what happens. You know how kids are. They start partying. And they're loud. And they create a ruckus. And the old man, where was he? Yes, here he is. The old man, Apsu, is just getting pretty frustrated at all of the noise. So he goes to Tiamat. And he complains. He says, listen, this is very bad. Their behavior is noisome to me. By day I have no rest. At night I don't sleep. I want to put an end to their behavior. I want to do away with it. I want silence to reign so I can sleep. Well, Tiamat understands what he's saying. He's saying, let's kill him. Let's just get rid of him. But Tiamat, she's not that bad. Even though their behavior, their actions were noisome to her, their behavior was offensive. But you know how moms can be. She was indulgent. Oh, kids will be kids. So there is a huge war that exists or that happens because the word gets out that as the gods are needing their sleep, something's going to have to be done and the kids are going to be killed. And Marduk gets word of this. So Marduk just goes ballistic and he basically comes in and, and wages war to kill the gods. And Tiamat, she's making all these weird creatures to go fight him. And they have the big fight, and he wins. Cuts her in half. Throws half of her up to be the sky, half of her down to be the dirt. Takes her skull, places it at the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates, which flow out of her eyeball sockets. (laughs) Meanwhile, don't think that the strikes only happen in Detroit. Because the Akkadian story that's contained in the Atrahasis tells you more about their gods. The Atrahasis, here's what it says. In essence, you've got these gods, you've already met them, who create these lesser gods and put them to work. One of their big jobs Digging out the Tigris and Euphrates River. Well, the lesser gods, they're worn out. I mean, this is like really hard work. So they go and they said, we're going on strike. We're not going to do this for y'all anymore. And the big gods are like, well, what's your problem? I said, do you have any idea how exhausting it is to dig these rivers? These are long. The days are hot. We're not having a good time. We're gods, after all. We shouldn't have to do this. The greater gods say, okay, well, let's figure this out. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll just make some human beings to do the hard work for you. Well, that's great. So, we can read in tablet one, when the gods, instead of men, did the work, bore the loads, the gods' load was too great, the work was too hard, the trouble was too much. So, they make human beings. How do they do it? They take the god, lesser god, Ali, and they just kill him. And then they take his bones and his flesh and his blood, and they mix it all up with clay. And that's how they make people. Of course, you know what happens as soon as you get a bunch of people together, pretty soon they're partying. And it's noisy, and the gods can't sleep. So now we've got to wipe out the people, so we're going to send a flood and wipe them all out. But some survive. So we've got these stories, but we don't only have these stories. We've got these markers as well, these, these monuments that have been built. This stella was first found at Beth Shan, which is up near Israel. And it's a contemporary, this is a, 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 a monument, a monument of the Pharaoh that Moses lived in the house for. 
Okay? Look at the top of this. Up here you've got the god Horus. And he's this winged creature you see up there. Then here's the sun god Ra. You've got the sun up here. He's got his falcon head. And you know who the other god is up here? Pharaoh, Seti the first. He's a god too. And they've got writing above here. Let me read you what the writing says. This was translated, by the way, by Ken Kitchen. Um, you see Ken Kitchen up here, who's like best Egyptian scholar, I believe, in the last hundred years at least, maybe ever. So here's what it says. The winged disc at the top. So that's where Horus is. That winged, you've got, you, it's hard to see back there, but you've got Horus and you've got a disc right there. So it's this winged disc up at the top, Horus. And, and right above it, it says, the Bedite, great God with dappled plumage, Lord of heaven. Whoops, sorry, there you go. And then over the king, Seti, Pharaoh, it says, the good God, Lord of both lands, men Mari, given life like Ray, all protection and life attend him. And he's performing incense and libation there, the king, the Seti is, to uh, Ra, or Ray Harakti, as they call him here. Great God, Lord of heaven, may he give all life. This was an image of Pharaoh that was constructed so that everybody would know that land was under his dominion and his control and under his authority. And the image that he created was to reflect his dominion and authority. Moses knew what it might mean for someone to be made in the image of God. You've also got, uh, uh, let me move you to the next one. This is, a, it's half life size. It's this huge monument. Hadad Yithil means, um, Hadad was a god. Uh, uh, the Yith part is probably a Semitic cognate of, of the Yish idea within Hebrew, uh, uh, Sha, Shua, which means savior. So it means ultimately, Hadad is my salvation. But it was the name of a king. And the king sticks this monument up there. And in the monument, here's the translation that goes with it. That's by Alan Millard, who's also been in this class. The image of Hadad Yit'i, which he has set up before Hadad of Sikkim, regulator of the waters of heaven and earth, who rains down abundance, gives pasture and warning places to all the lands, who gives... But key to this is, this is his image. This is the image... Of the king who's the image of God. And that was exclusive to the king. It was exclusive to Pharaoh. Didn't say all the people are made in the image of God. It said the king is. And the image is set up to show the king's dominion. And that's true in countless monuments that you find there. So here's Moses, and Moses gets here on Mount Sinai, and he's got all of this background, and he gets told this bizarre story of creation that is so radically different than anybody has ever said before. And if we read the text in the context of how he would have been thinking, realizing God's giving that information to Israel... And while we do it, we uphold the integrity of Scripture, we uphold the theology of Scripture... But we still read it in context. And what do we read? What are the take-homes that he would have had? Well, first of all, it's very apparent that God's using ancient cosmology. He uses words like firmament to hold back the waters in the sky. He doesn't talk in our science about condensation and gravity and atmosphere. And the, the, the ways these things work together on a planet that's spinning with a space-time continuum that's tied into gravity. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't expound on Newtonian physics. He doesn't expound on, on the, the, the physics of, of uh, Einstein or the, the modern physics. 
But what he does is he uses the ancient understanding to give an entirely different message. This is not a world where the, the gods like are the earth, where you can confuse a god for being in the sky, where you can confuse a god for being the sun or being the air. None of that. You can't, in, in, you can't confuse the sun god, Shamash, uh, Shamash, of being a sun god who sits above the stars with waters in the heaven that are holding back, held back by the firmament. None of that. You've got a God, you've got a creation story where Moses is taught the earth is without form and the earth is void. So God is going to form the earth and then he's going to fill it. God's going to fix it. But God's not the earth. God forms light and darkness. God forms the firmament, the heavens separating from the waters. God forms the land and the vegetation that goes with it. And then God fills it. He puts the sun, moon, and stars to fill the light he formed. He puts the fish sea and the birds in the heavens to fill the uh, the heavens and the waters. He puts animals, bugs, and people to fill the land. This is God bringing order to life. We have a God of order. And as Greg was, was pointing out to me in some of his emails this week, a God of function. He fills this, even if I don't read it fully in that word good, and it may be in the word good, but he fills it in a way that functions. It works. Furthermore, come on. One God apart from nature, not many gods who are part of nature. That's a radical concept. It's not radical to us. To Moses, that would have been... I mean, seriously... One God. That alone is like, who on earth ever would have thought? One God. Don't put any other gods up there. There's nobody else to put up there. Don't worship any of these other gods. There's one God. And he's not bound by nature. He's not going to fall asleep in a field and have to be stung by a bee. He's not the ground. He's not the mountain. He's not the sky. He's not the sun. He made all of that. That exists because he made it. But he's outside of it. He's he's above creation. He's not captive to it. I mean, that's just like, again. Moses is sitting there saying, wait a minute. You're saying God makes nature? God's not tied to nature? Yeah. Wow. Who'd have thunk? Wait. God's outside of space and time. He's not captive to it. He doesn't need a nap. When it says he created darkness and light... Morning and evening, day one. It's saying he created the calendar. He made time. When God made the universe, God's responsible for time. God makes time. He's not tied to it. What's more, God's not a sexual being. Really? Really? The gods were gendered. We didn't come about because the gods were breeding. I mean, it's just like... Even Pharaoh claimed to be a god because of some breeding that was going on with Horus and his mama and daddy. God's not a supersized human being. He's not supersized with human limitations and human needs and human desires. And, oh no, I'm worried another God's coming to get me. And the wars of the God. No. And God made you and me to be in fellowship and to walk with him. Not to make his life easy. In fact, the Christian story says we made his life incredibly tough. The toughest it could be from a human perspective. What's more, Moses is told God makes nature 
for humans to use. We're to have dominion. When God says, let's make man in in our image, male and female, he created them in his image. He's saying, we'll put, we don't need to build a stone's monument that says, this is mine. We're going to say, you're in my image. You are my stone monument. And so everything's under your control and dominion. Now you be me on earth. Fall happens. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Doesn't change who we're supposed to be. Just means we've got to learn how to rely upon God and walk through the cross of Christ to be able to do what we're supposed to do. Now someone is sitting out there saying, I thought you were going to talk about creation and evolution. Because some people feel they're walking a tightrope in their faith regarding science and reading Genesis here. Put it down there under the tightrope. I want to urge you to hear me and you can email me all you want this week and tell me how wrong I am, but I really want you to hear me. I care immensely that we understand that this is the word of God, but I give God the freedom to write it, to dictate it, to inspire it however he wants to. And I firmly believe it's written in a way where we uphold the integrity of every word of it. But if we read this story and understand that there are a number of options at how we wish to translate and understand it, and I'm telling you, pay your money and take your pick. Because I believe you can hold the integrity of Scripture and uphold the integrity of theology and believe, Miss Carolina put this first for you, That it is a seven-day, 24-hour-ish, because each day is not technically exactly 24 hours. It fluctuates depending upon how the earth's turning. Seven-day, 24-hour-ish process. You want to believe that? You can believe that off these scriptures. And God bless you, because you're upholding the integrity of scripture and revelation. Or you might say, I think it's seven time periods. you know, not so much a 24-hour-ish process. So, for example, you can look at that word. There's a Hebrew word that's translated day. And it's the Hebrew word yom. That's uh, Y-O-M, yom. And remember, you've got 6,000 Hebrew words doing the work of 50,000 English words that the average high school graduate has working in their brain. So it does like 10 times duty on average. Yom can mean a 24-hour day. But yom can also mean a period of time. Doesn't have to mean a 24-hour day. So for example, you can see in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we read, whoops, thus the heavens and earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, seventh yom, that's the word yom, God finished his work and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he'd done. God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy. Then you have this fresh start at a story, the creation of man and woman. These are the generations, Toledot in the Hebrew, of the heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that God made the earth and heavens. Well, he didn't make them in a day. That's a time period. Same word. It's just referencing a time period. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant. So that's technically day three if we're following the 24-hour day, seven days a week. Because on day three, he makes the bushes of the field and the plants with the vegetation. But when no bush, no plant, the Lord God had not caused it to rain. There's no man to work the ground. A mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground. And then he plants the garden. So some people say, you know, 
if you understand data mean period type stuff, we're doing a little bit better here. By the way, God does say, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day, Yom, the day you eat of it, you'll die. Well, Moses, Adam doesn't die the day he eats of it. He dies a few hundred years later. We're following the text. And this continues. Uh, you see it over and over. In fact, in, in, in Genesis 4, verse 3, you've got the Cain and Abel story. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Well, translated time here, that's just the Hebrew word day. Course of time. In a day. See, so it's, it's that, that idea. So you can, you can say that these are seven 24-hour, I mean seven periods, more so than 24-hour-ish process. It's just seven periods of time. You can say Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 have a big division between them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then, maybe eons pass by. Maybe bazillions of years pass by and we get to Genesis 1-2. The earth is without form and void. And God starts doing additional work. A choir's got to go practice. Y'all get ready, sorry. Um, And I'm bringing this to a close. You can also take the view that this is written to correct their theology and it's not written to inform their science. Much like we read so many of the Psalms that talk about the sun going up in the sky and coming back down and the earth staying still. You can, you can say the theology is the key. You can read this and decide, I believe in theistic evolution. And by that, there's evolution that's taken place, but it's God's hand that divines and discern, discerns it. You can take it further and say God's intentionally designed things. And that's another one. You can read all this stuff. You can say it's an aged creation. That God says, okay, today I'm making Adam and Eve. And I'm making the world. But if you look back in time, that big tree I just planted, if you chop it down, it's going to have 50 rings because it looks like a 50-year-old tree. It's got history behind it. He can create a world. Adam and Eve can have a navel. Belly button. Not navel orange. Belly button. Even though they didn't have an umbilical cord. Because he, he didn't make... If you... If, look. You could have put Adam on the day he was created in a dental chair. And the dentist would say, Well, you're clearly not one day old because you've got your wisdom teeth in. You got your molars. You're not gumming your food. That'll come in a few hundred years. But, I mean, we don't know how God created. We don't know these things. And I want to talk more about this because I want to talk through the theology. And I've got some wackadoodle ideas that are options as well. So we need to come back because we're going to take our time as we walk through this stuff. We're going to talk about the fall of the late Bronze Age and how these people fell. And we're going to talk about how God built up and how God transformed things. But we cannot leave without points for home because these are the takeaways. I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine with anybody who wants to tell me. So, Miss Carolyn, you can tell me. Mark, I believe it's that. And I'm absolutely convinced. God bless you. I'm so glad you may be right. And Janet, you may tell me, I believe it's this. I just think that's what it is. Well, God bless you. You may be right. Because I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. I don't want to get into a science argument and miss what God is saying that was so mind-blowing to them. I don't want to miss the unique awesomeness of God in his revelation that God is unlike any God that had ever been conceived of by man or woman he revealed himself to Moses because we weren't able to figure him out on our own if we don't have revelation from God we will supersize him as a human or we will think he doesn't exist or we will use him to explain away this that or the other or we will turn into Harry Potter fans who think that this world is a magical world because there's a God who went to sleep instead of fertilizing the crops 
But Moses said, the Lord, your God, is God of gods. He's Lord of lords. He's great. He's mighty. He's awesome. Boom! That's Yahweh God. Don't miss that because we're arguing science. Don't miss the unique awesomeness of God in his creation. In what we see, the psalmist, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This is what God has done. And don't miss your importance to God. He didn't make us because he needed us to do his work. He didn't make us because he was bored. He didn't make us because we do anything for him. The society of God, he is fine within the fellowship of the Trinity. But when I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and stars you've set in place, what am I that you're mindful of me? Yet you are. You've made me a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned me with glory and honor. You've given dominion over the works of your hands. That's the message that we better not miss just because we're trying to merge something with our understanding of science. Do not lose track of the message in your struggle to make sense of the science. Does that make sense? Okay, we got more to come. Um, Let me bless you in the name of Jesus, and I'm excited. We'll have John Lennox next Sunday. Uh, I'll interview him, and then, um, and by the way, it will be one of the, the top interviews we've had in this class. I really urge you not just to come, but to bring your friends, especially if you have friends who are unbelievers or weirded about church. Just bring them. All right. Um, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessings upon us. And by that, Lord, I'm specifically asking you to imprint upon our hearts and minds and souls the reality of who you are in a mind-blowing way. That you have created us as significant, real beings, Lord, to be your image on this earth, to act for you, to portray you, to model you, And Lord, we cannot do that without your Holy Spirit working within us because frankly, we are way too fallen. So we pray that you will make us holy, that you will sanctify us, that you will work within us, that you will buff, polish, and shine us, that you'll burn away the dross, that you will purify us so that we can be more holy for you to this world. We pray that through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the resurrected King of Kings. Amen.